Good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining me uh, here for our word, uh, our time in the Word of God at Root River Church this morning. I want to thank you also for all of your continued prayer and support for my family and me as we've been uh, battling COVID in our family for the last week and a half to two weeks. <clears throat> we are uh, we're doing well, and we are so thankful for your continued prayer. We love and appreciate you, but not only for us, but for the many others in our church uh, family who are battling COVID in their own homes at this point. Uh, there are nearly 20 people in our church body uh, who have become ill, and <clears throat> I'm just always so blessed by your prayers for, uh, for one another, and of course for your prayers for my, my family uh, and me as well. So thank you so much for that. Uh, but I, I just want you to know that I was particularly blessed, uh, was it a night or or two ago, my dog began barking pretty passionately, and uh, the brave husband as I am, when I had uh, sent my wife downstairs to investigate what the ruckus was, she opened the front door to find a pot pie sitting on my front porch. So uh, we could not wait, and we just had to dive right in. In fact, I was so blessed by that pot pie that I've been blessed by it a couple of times uh, since that, that time as well, including uh, this morning. Uh, I was blessed with pot pie for breakfast. So thank you so much for your kindness and your generosity. We do love and appreciate you so much. But today we come to a very important passage uh, of Scripture, and it's Acts chapter 2. Uh, so just so that you know, we want to take this passage as a singular unit, so we will begin this week, and we'll wrap up our thoughts the next time we're together. So please, if you don't feel that, we've, uh, that we have completely concluded our point at the end of our time in the Word of God uh, this morning, don't feel bad about that because you're absolutely right. Uh, just hang in there with me, and we'll, we'll do our very best to finish it up next week with something that is actionable and something that you can hang your hats on. This is a, a very, very important uh, passage of Scripture uh, because it's in this segment of Scripture uh, that the New Testament church is born. It's in this segment of Scripture that the New Testament church is empowered and it is thrust forward to fulfill the command of Christ in Matthew chapter 28 where he says that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that we are to be teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. It was here in Acts chapter 2 that the church would receive the Holy Spirit through which Christ would fulfill His promise to be with us always until the very end of the age, the Word says. I trust that you'll remember in our, past, our message from the first chapter of the book of Acts, it was there that uh, we had said that the earthly ministry of Christ was concluded he perfectly fulfilled the redemptive plan of the Father, which the Father had planned from the very beginning of time, and that Jesus at that point began to do and to teach. But as He promised, He would not leave His people alone. In John 16, He told His disciples, It's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send alos parakletos. I will send another comforter, another helper, who is of the same order, who is just like me. And Jesus told them then that right now the Comforter lives with you, but when I go away and I send him back, at that point he will live in you. So then in Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus concluded his earthly ministry by ascending into heaven. And as he left, he told his friends to go to Jerusalem. He said that he he wanted them to wait until he fulfilled the promise to send the other comforter who would now be coming to live in them. So in obedience to his word, that's what they did. And today, in Acts chapter 2, we are going to see Jesus fulfill his promise on the day of Pentecost. Well, I want to take you back to the Old Testament, if I may, to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16. Because it's there that the Word of God declares that three times a year, all of your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose. Those three times that the males were to appear before the Lord were at the, um, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place around what we would know as late September or early October on our calendar. Then there was also the Feast of Passover, which occurred in late March to early April on our calendars. And then there was the celebration of Pentecost, which was celebrated exactly 50 days after the Passover. And the traditional meeting place for each of those three three celebrations were, of course, as you know, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as you know, at various times in history... Jews had been scattered from Palestine in what was known as the Diaspora. There were several of those. And after the siege of Jerusalem in 63 BC, when the Hasmonean kingdom became a protectorate of Rome, that dispersion of Jewish people around the world began to intensify. There were large communities of Jewish people, of faithful Jews, of course, in the area of Palestine, such as Judea and Samaria. But there were also large communities in places like Syria, Babylonia, Egypt, Crete, Cyrene, and of course in Rome. They were all across the known world of the time. The Roman historian Tacitus estimated that the population of Jerusalem was about 600,000 people at the time of Christ. So many people then made the journey to Jerusalem for Passover. And in fact, there were so many of them that made the trip for the Passover from around the known world at the time that Josephus estimated that the population of the city of Jerusalem would swell to as many as two to even three million people at the time of the Passover. The journey from Rome to go and celebrate the Passover would have been over a thousand miles If you were to travel travel from Egypt, it would have been 600 miles or more. And without the benefit of the Ford Motor Company or American Airlines, the journey would have been rather long. So they would often travel in caravans, not of the Dodge variety like you and I travel in, but they would travel often in, in caravans or maybe in ships across the Mediterranean. But in any event, the journey would have been measured not in hours, but in weeks. It was a long, long journey. Now, from the time of Passover, which is, of course, the day on which Jesus was crucified, to the time of Pentecost, or the celebration of Pentecost, was only 50 days. Now, because of the difficulty of travel, 
Many people who had traveled such great distances to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem would stay in the city of Jerusalem. They would lodge maybe with friends or with family, and in some cases, complete strangers. And they would do that for the seven-week period between Passover and the celebration of Pentecost. And then, after that 50 days, after that seven weeks, after they had celebrated both of those festivals, finishing up with Pentecost, they would then make their way back home after that. So the city of Jerusalem then, which would have already potentially had millions of people in it at the, at, uh, in the city at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, would still likely have had even more than a million people in it. And, and, and that's from all of the travels who had come all from all around the known world to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost as required. So the population at that time would have been absolutely huge. Well, in the meanwhile, Jesus, after the Passover, as you know, when he was murdered, when he was crucified, he had been resurrected after three days in the grave. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 that for the next 40 days that Jesus had presented himself alive to, uh, to many of the people and that he was teaching about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And that's what he did for the next 40 days. At that point, we know that it was time for him to go. He then ascended into heaven, and when he did, he told his disciples, go wait in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit who will take up residence inside of you. So after his ascension, in obedience to the instruction of Jesus Christ, the disciples for the next 10 days, gathered in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. Maybe they were praying together. We know that they were doing that. And during that time, they had even rep uh, had appointed a replacement for Judas. Aside from that, they were likely coming and going into the upper room at John Mark's mother's house. And so now, with that context properly set, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2, where it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. So if you'll take a look with me at verse 1, <clears throat> this is what Acts chapter 2 says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And I want to just pause there if I could. So as they were there, roughly 120 people, including the 12, had gathered together in the upper room of Mark's mom's home. And while they were there, the Holy Spirit then descended on them. And when the Holy Spirit showed up, He made a big entrance. God did not want there to be any question that what was happening that day was the supernatural fulfillment of the promise that Jesus Christ had made to His disciples. <clears throat> Jesus had been ministering and preaching openly for the last three years. He did it publicly. He did not in any way conceal his ministry, but he preached boldly and openly. And the apostles and all those who continued all that Jesus began to do and all that he began to teach would do the exact same thing in his absence. So when the Holy Spirit burst onto the scene, it was not to be a private or an intimate event which was open to experiential interpretation. 
when the Holy Spirit came, he came openly and he came publicly for everyone to see. When he came, he made a bold declaration that today is the church of Jesus Christ born. And what you're about to witness now is what is known as the initial dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Now there are people who claim that the events of Acts chapter 2 establish what is normative or that it establishes the standard for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to begin that discussion today and we will follow that through the book of Acts in the months to come in our study of the birth of the church to see if that is true and we will bear that out. But as we examine, examine the initial dispensation or the initial arrival of the Holy Spirit, there are three supernatural phenomena that accompany His arrival here in Acts chapter 2. And so if we are to determine whether or not Acts chapter 2 establishes normativity or the standard for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then what we really want to do is we want to watch closely those three supernatural natural phenomena, and we want to follow them all throughout the book of Acts. So let's look at them closely. Take a look at verse 2 with me, if you would, this morning, please. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I want you to imagine what it must have been like to have been there with the 120 on that day. I can remember as a young man... Uh, in the army, having been stationed in the city of San Francisco. One day, I believe it was in, in June sometime, as we sat in our classroom just kind of doing our thing, doing uh, what we did throughout the day, as we sat there, the entire building just began to shake. And it was interesting because while we were all engaged in our own separate thoughts and our own separate conversations, doing our own thing, this completely captured everyone's attention, as you can imagine. I mean, everyone began to look at everyone else to see what was going on, what was causing this building to shake like this. And of course, it turns out that there had been an earthquake several hundred, mi uh, several hundred miles away and that we were all feeling the tremors from that event. But I'm always reminded of that when I read Acts chapter too, and I'll show you why. Because here they are, and they're all gathered together, just kind of doing their thing. They're in the upper room of Mark's mom's house. Maybe some of them were praying. Maybe some of them were enjoying a bite to eat. Maybe they were sitting and they were talking. They were just kind of doing their thing, and something happens. And when it happens, it completely captures absolutely everyone. <clears throat> Suddenly, as they sat there, from out of nowhere, there was this sound. It's the word echos in the Greek. It's a loud noise or it's a roar. It's a confused sound. I mean, can you imagine? Here they are talking and all of a sudden there's this loud, sustained roar. There's this loud, sustained sound. And they frantically begin to look around the room to try to determine what is going on. And you can imagine maybe someone shouts out, what is that? And someone else says, I don't know. It sounds like a really strong wind. And someone else says, well, I don't feel any wind. And someone else says, I, I don't know what it is. 
And as they look around in confusion, trying to understand what is this noise, what is going on here, then in verse 3, and then in the middle of all of that, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Luke, in his best attempt to recount for his readers the descriptions of the events as they were retold by the people who were actually there, tries his very best to describe the indescribable. I want you to put yourself in Luke's shoes right now and try to, to, to describe to someone around you the events that are happening here in Acts chapter 2 at this moment. I mean, how do you describe something like this? Well, there were these, these things that showed up on each of them. Well, what were they? Well, I don't know. They looked like these little tongues that were kind of split in the middle and, and they, they kind of flickered and danced around and they, they looked like they were like a, a set of fire. They looked like they were flames, like they were little flickers of, of fire. And I think that's the best he could come up with to help us understand. The point is that whatever was happening was not natural. Whatever was happening was a supernatural event. These things that showed up were not man-made. They were, they, they, they were unique. They were supernatural. And when they showed up, they made absolutely no distinction between the 12 closest disciples of Jesus Christ and the other disciples. Listen, when these tongues showed up, they made no distinction between the mother of Jesus Christ and his brothers. When they showed up, the people who were praying when the Holy Spirit arrived did not have larger, longer, brighter, flickering things resting on them than those who were talking or eating or doing anything else. This was a supernatural phenomenon, and every single one of them experienced the same manifestation. They were all the same. It was a uniform baptism into the body of Christ. There weren't those who were more baptized or more special than any of the others. They were one group of diverse individuals being baptized and formed into the one body of Jesus Christ. Think about that. With all of their different life experiences, with the diversity of their skills and family stories, with their various positions and relationship to Jesus Christ himself, they were still all the same. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And she was no different. She was treated no differently than Peter, who had denied Jesus Christ. The brothers of Jesus, who had recently become believers themselves, were the same as Matthew, the tax collector. They were all in the same body. Friends, I think it's, this is a good time for us to pause, to remind one another that in the economy of God, in the church family, there are no preferred members the one who has served and honored God from the very earliest of days of his youth is no better and he is not preferred over the one who was just set free from drug addiction and delivered unto salvation just last week. If you're a family member, if you are in the family, you are in the family. 
And I'm glad to tell you, friends, that those who feel particularly enlightened and, and spiritually advanced, no matter how much they may try to convince you otherwise, they are not any more beloved. They are not any more anointed by the Holy Spirit. They are not any more favored by God than those who have only now come to faith and who still struggle with the tug of the sinful nature in their lives. You're not a lesser member of the family of God. No matter your view of yourselves, you are not preferred members of the family of God either. God help us at Root River Church to embrace the truth that there is no spiritual caste system in the body of Christ. Forgive us, God, for our spiritual pride. Forgive us for our spiritual doubt and help us to grow and to serve together as one body bound together by peace and the unity of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4.3. So at this point, we've seen the initial dispensation of the Holy Spirit accompanied by a supernatural, loud, sustained confused roar of a sound, and these things that looked like little tongues split in the middle, which were burning, resting on everyone. So now I want to show you what the third manifestation is. Let's take a look at verse 4, and this is what it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I want to just pause here, if I could, for a few moments to introduce you to the word tongues. Unfortunately, I think that this word has, over the years, developed a sense um, that is maybe a little bit mysterious. Uh, and I think it's a little unfortunate, especially in this case, because I want you to know there really is nothing mysterious here. This is very, very simple. Let me help you understand this word. It's the Greek word glosa, and it can basically take one of three meanings in the original Greek language. So stay with me as we go through this. I'm going to present to you the three meanings that this word glosa can take in the Greek language, and it can only take one of these three. So one of them, of course, as you know, is tongue. It's that pink organ inside your mouth, and it's covered in taste buds and bacteria, and it's, and it's kind of gross a lot of times, but it's also the organ of speech. So it's that organ in your mouth, that's tongue. So it's literally the slab of meat in your mouth. Now, the second meaning for the word glossop is anything that looks like the organ inside your mouth. And that's the use that we saw earlier in, pa in the passage in verse 3 when Luke said, those things that rested on everyone's head, what did he call them? He called them tongues. And that's why he did that, because that's what they looked like. Were they literal slabs of pink flesh? No, they weren't that at all. He called them tongues because that's what he thought they looked like. Simple enough, right? So now I want to share with you the third and the final understanding of the Greek word glossa. It is a distinct language or dialect. Well, ask yourselves, what is a language? Well, a language is very simply this. It's very simply words and expressions that are used and understood by a large group of people as a system of communication with one another. 
Is that a fair definition? I'm going to say that to you again. It is the words and expressions used and understood by a large group of people as a system of communication with one another. Think of it in terms of the most popular languages in the world today. The four most commonly spoken languages in the world today are Mandarin Chinese, Spanish, English, and Hindi. Together, these four languages combine to make up about 30% of the world's total population. So 30% of the world's total population, as it is today, speaks one of those four languages. They communicate and they understand one another through the system of words and expressions of those four languages. So now, given the three possible understandings of the word glossa, which we've just covered, of the three possible understandings of the word glossa, we now have to determine which is the right application for this particular event. So the correct understanding, as you can imagine, is distinct languages. So now let me support that for you. Let's go to verse 5 in chapter 2, and this is what it says. Now there were dwelling, which is to say there were settled down and staying for an extended period of time in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And why were they there? Well, they were there because they were devout Jews who had settled in with friends and family, as we had said, for the period of about seven weeks, waiting for the celebration of Pentecost. Where were they from? Well, the Bible tells us they were from every nation under heaven. They had heard the commotion as they were in town of the loud noise. They heard all of this noise as they were doing their thing, as they were just living their lives. They hear this loud commotion, and just like everyone else, they were looking around to find out what the source of the noise was. And so they follow the sound of this noise. They don't feel any wind, but they hear this loud roar. They're not sure what this is, but they follow the sound of this noise and they make their way to the house of Mark's mother. And as they're standing outside the house of Mark's mother, they look up and there in the upper room, they see a bunch of people, somewhere around 120 people gathered right there in the upper room of the house of Mark's mom. Now back to verse four. Those in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in distinct languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And in verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, they were confused, they were stirred up, and they were in terrible disorder. That's what that word means. And why was this the case? Because each one of them was hearing them, the people in the upper room, speak in his own language. Now wait a minute. These were fishermen, right? These were not educated men and women who had gathered together in that upper room. They were not linguists. They spoke Aramaic, and maybe they had heard a little bit of Greek. Maybe they had even heard a little bit of Latin, but they were not linguists. 
They did not know foreign languages. It takes years to learn a foreign language, and these men and women had no education. This was absolutely amazing. It was stunning. No one had ever seen anything like this before. And the Bible tells us that they were absolutely beside themselves when they saw this. And look at verse 7. It says, and they were amazed, and they were astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. People from all over the world who spoke many different distinct languages, many distinct dialects. They had come in from all over the known world, and these 120 people were speaking actual foreign languages that most of them had never even heard before. They were speaking meaningful and structured words and phrases to communicate a message to their intended hearers. And you know that the message of the 120, the message that they were communicating in intelligible languages was once again very consistent and it was very unified. You didn't have different people speaking different things. There was not a separate meaning of, or a separate understanding for each individual utterance. They all had purpose, they all had reason, and there was no confusion to the message. It was remarkably clear. Take a look at verse 11, the second part, and look at what it is. We hear them telling in our own tongues or in our own distinct languages. Let's plug that in. We hear them telling in our own distinct languages, what? The mighty works of God. What is that? Well, reflection on the great things that God had done for his people was an essential element of the worship system of God and Jewish life. The faithful Jew was to remember the works of God and he was to tell them to the next generation. He was to tell them to his children and to his children's children. He was to recount the mighty works of God. I often think of think of. Psalm 77, in which Asaph wrote in verses 11 to 15, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You with your arm redeemed your own people. That's what it means to tell the mighty works of God. And when those uneducated few were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to declare the mighty works of God, saying, who is like our God? There is no God like our God. He is the one who works wonders. That's what they were saying. That was the content of their message. 
And to those devout and faithful Jews who had journeyed from all over the kingdom, all over the known world to celebrate Passover and Pentecost in Jerusalem, the fact that these 120 uneducated men and women in the upper room would speak such high spiritual truth as those clearly and accurately in a language that was not even their own meant that the one true God whom they were declaring must have empowered them. Think about that. The one true God must have sent and empowered these men and women. So the Holy Spirit then used the sound of the wind to gather all the people together. And then he made it clear that these believers of Jesus Christ were devoted to worshiping and serving the one true God. But if that was true, then this was a new age. If that was true, if those followers of Jesus Christ were miraculously sharing the message of the same God that these people had worshipped since ancient times, something was new. So the Holy Spirit hit His mark. The Holy Spirit accomplished His purposes. And when the Holy Spirit came that day and drew crowds of thousands of people who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this event, and the Holy Spirit used the timing of God to draw all of these people in so that they could hear 120 uneducated men and women declaring the mighty works and the mighty deeds of God in their own languages. They knew that this was a new day. This was the day that the church was born. And I just love the response of those people who showed up, who heard the sound and made their way to see the spectacular event. Verse 12, we're told that they were all amazed and perplexed. And they said together, what does this mean? And next week, when we get back together, we're going to see the answer to that question. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your Holy Spirit sent to live in all of us who will inherit salvation, that you don't any longer live with us, but you live in us. And I ask this morning that you would make Root River Church a body of believers who are characterized by submission to your will and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for those in our church body today who are struggling with not only the physical effects of COVID pandemic, but also the emotional and the spiritual effects Lord, I would just ask that you would bring strength and restoration. I pray, God, that you would bring healing to those who are battling the illness right now. And I pray, God, that you would bring peace and strength to those who are battling the feelings of isolation and loneliness. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen our minds and our bodies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us again this morning. 
for our time in the Word of God right here at Root River Church. As always, I want to encourage you, do your best. Stay plugged in, engage with one another, reach out to someone that you know is struggling, and pray with them and be an encouragement to them. And I also want to thank you for staying engaged in your faithful giving. We love and appreciate you. And I just want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in your, your giving and in that area. You can give by going online to rootriverchurch.com and, of course, by mailing your gifts to our P.O. Box 321113 in Franklin. So we thank you so much for your, your continued faithful and generous giving. We thank you again for your continued prayers. We do love you, and we're looking forward to being back here together soon. I just want you to know that you should stay tuned to our Facebook page. Be looking for announcements. We're working hard to get everyone back together, and we'll give you updates in the coming days. It won't be long. Uh, we want to make sure that we all get together as quickly as possible, but we want to make sure we're also doing it as safely as possible. So God bless you, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Know that we continue to pray for you and your families, and we look forward to worshiping with you again soon. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.